This is Football Social Daily, the Premier League podcast. Welcome to Football Social Daily, your award-winning Premier League podcast. It might be a new season, but it's the same old story for Everton. Bottom of the table after two games following a 4-0 thrashing at Aston Villa. But it was a much happier weekend for West Ham, tipped by some to struggle this season. But the Hammers registered an impressive London derby win over a much-changed Chelsea. Is patience going to be a virtue for Pochettino, as already some fans are calling for his head? Plus, we'll look at the latest top-flight transfer talk and, of course, Arsenal's game with Crystal Palace tonight as they look to make it two wins from two. My name's Niall, welcome to the show, and Marley is on holiday. He's in Greece, so it's just me and Joel in the studio right now. No, we've, sacked right. we've sacked him. We've sacked him. Tell him the truth. <laughs> we got rid of him. He's Marley, if, you, if you're listening to this, sorry, P45's already in the post. <laughs> he's the first uh, <laughs> departure of the season. <laughs> first manager, well, I was going to say first manager, but he's gone quicker than Scott Parker. Jim Salveson will hopefully join us a little bit later on after a big win for his team West Ham but before we started I did want to say something last week one of our regular listeners Tom was kind enough to send us an email he said listen lads what's going on with Football Social Daily lately you haven't been uploading as much the schedule has changed a bit I'm missing my Premier League football fix and Tom's right some of you will have noticed we haven't quite been 100% at the races on FSD recently. So I thought it's only fair that we let you, the listeners, know exactly what is going on. Joel, Marley and I really love doing this podcast. We've loved it for the last four years that we've been doing it and we really respect every single person who takes time out of their day to listen to what we have to say about Premier League football because we are just three normal lads who live in Manchester and enjoy the beautiful game as much as anyone else. But long story short, we are going through some changes behind the scenes at FSD at the moment. We were told at the start of the season by those above, you could say, that either we took Football Social Daily on as a side project in our own time or the podcast would have to stop. And obviously we could not let that happen. We'd never want to let you guys down. And we've poured so many hours into the show over the last four years. Basically, Football Social Daily has gone from being our actual jobs, if you can call it work, to now just a hobby. So we've decided that we're not going to let FSD die. We couldn't do that, Joel, could we? It's like stopping supporting your club because you start losing <laughs> a few games. Come on now. You think we're going to give up that no. streak, the Undertaker streak of Absolutely. I don't know how many days, how many years. We're going to sit back up like the Undertaker did, which right. is what we're doing right now. And it takes a bit of inner strength to do that. And as I'm sure you can appreciate, it's not easy. When we started Football Social Daily, it was seven days a week. We're the only Premier League podcast to do that. That took its toll. And as much as we love doing it, we needed a bit of a change in schedule. We went down to five days. We brought you some guest interviews. Of course, life gets in the way. We need to fit recording and editing and publishing the podcast around day-to-day life, family time, working hours, holidays, for example. Joel was off last week. Marley's on holiday this week. I'm away this weekend. So you can understand the last two weeks, you know, it's a really good example of why it has been tough. It's highly unlikely Football Social Daily is going to return to seven days a week, but I am hopeful that we will be back in the rhythm of a more rich schedule before long as we get back up and running again. So as Tom took the time to get in touch with us via email, I thought it's only fair to let him know and let you all know why we've been slightly less regular. But bear with us. Because the glory days will return, won't they, Joel? Of course, and I think it's quality over quantity, of course, as everyone has probably listened to as well. We don't like to put our half-hearted shows. Everything's going to be quality. We don't hide from the big topics or the small topics. 
but it's a period of transition. You know, yep. everyone remembers David Moyes' time at the start of Manchester United. Transition. <laughs> Still going through that transition don't, 10 don't years on. I remember how it ended. <laughs> Didn't, we're not going to end like that. Maybe that's a bad example. <laughs> Different <laughs> transitionary period. I can't think of the one that's Please Arteta or Brighton or someone like that. That'd be, <laughs> someone that'd be that's a successful transition. Yeah, there we go. But yeah, it goes without saying transitionary period but once we find our feet a lot of exciting things in the yeah. works and I think it's going to be even yeah. stronger than it probably ever has been in my opinion so bear yeah. with us trust us when we say this <laughs> we will be back with revenge <laughs> we've got some exciting stuff coming in the next few months of the season so definitely stick with us and it's worth pointing out as Joel says nothing's going to change you'll hear the same voices on the show it'll be the same Premier League debate and discussion it's just while we sort ourselves out behind the scenes and figure out what's going on that maybe we'll be slightly sluggish. So as we mentioned, Marley's off this week. Joel's already had his knees up in Italy. Can I, can I week, also so. just add as well, I need to air this on air. One of my friends, my good best friends, he messaged me yesterday and he sent me a clip <laughs> during the clip. I didn't realise I said that I have many females in my life. <laughs> and he messaged me and said, Joel, I thought you were dating someone. Do you know that she might listen to this and say you've got many females in your life? So just for the record, <laughs> I don't have many females like that. I'm not carrying like nine females in my life and like, you know, giving a bit of time to one bit of time to the other. I didn't mean it like that. For the record, because I'm getting outed now by my friends, which <laughs> cannot be happening. <laughs> well, Joel's got that out in the open now. So that's not just one thing we've cleared up on FSD. That's two things right, already. We're getting, we're getting a therapy session going. We're now. off to a good start. And if you are a regular listener to this show, then you'll know that the first podcast of every week, we like to kick it off with a section called Get in the Sea, which is our chance to have a bit of a moan about something from the Premier League weekend that we've not enjoyed. Last week, VAR... And refereeing decisions were top of the agenda, Joel. I wouldn't be shocked if that's the same case again this week. Well, it happened to my club. Um, I know any fellow, fellow Manchester United supporters listening to this can sympathise with me. It wasn't the greatest game in the world. But, again, another penalty incident. As we, as we saw at the Wolves game the previous week where Onana ended up yeah. clattering the Wolves player. And, you know, I've always been a massive advocate of, a, of VAR because it's not... It's a cause or effect. It's not the cause of VAR. It's the effect of how people are using VAR. VAR is a great tool, mm. an amazing tool that we can look in retrospect. Can you imagine all the historical big moments in the past that would have happened and would have been cleaned up because of that? The biggest one that comes to mind is the Maradona moment. Yeah, a certain course. goalkeeper wouldn't have mm. nightmares anymore if it wasn't for uh, VAR. It's <laughs> still happening. I won't mention any names. Um but yeah, I mean, I'm a huge advocate for it. But when you're having these moments, you know, there was the moment where Garnacho had a shot and the Spurs' player was literally out like he was doing mm. Saturday Night Fever with his hands in the air. And suddenly you're looking at, well, how how is VAR working then? Are they actually looking at this in retrospect? Are the rules even grounded? And did they have a definitive idea of what handball is anymore? It's, it's a strange one for me still. And it's just so annoying how every single season we talk about the same things. Yeah. Well, VAR is a great tool, that's the bottom line, but there's just the people who are using it don't know how to use it or they don't know what the laws in place are to use it. What do you make about this notion that they even themselves out through the season? I'm going to have to rummage around for the cliche bell because that is the Christ. biggest cliche ding, ding, of them ding. all. There we go. Cliche. What do you make of that? Because we always hear managers and pundits say the decisions even themselves out over the course of a season. And from a Manchester United perspective, you got away with one against Wolves you didn't get one against Spurs. One goes for you, one goes against you. As yeah. much as it is a cliche, is that evidence of that being correct? Or would you sooner have seen both decisions got right 
and less complaints from everyone. I would say that's correct prior to VAR when you couldn't look back in retrospect and say, oh, at the end of the season, these bad decisions will end up going your way because they can look at these, they can look at them, they have the privilege and the amazing ability to look at every single detail in complete slow motion, fast motion, whatever motion you want and see if it's the right decision or not. Um, But I'm not a fan of the fact, and I think Bruno hinted at it in his conference as well and it happened before where when sometimes teams get a bad decision or a good decision against them sometimes in the following games they end up basically getting nothing it's almost like they can't give anything to that team anymore and that's the only thing that I don't like about it but I mean you can't be evening out decisions anymore because you can look at them also some people wound up this weekend about Bruno Fernandes coming out after the game and saying there was this big hoo-ha about Wolverhampton Wanderers not getting a penalty after Anana clatters into two Wolves players on Monday night at Old Trafford. But yet, where's the furor for the handball against Tottenham? And a good point made at the wrong time because Manchester United were outclassed, I thought, by Tottenham. I thought Spurs were well-deserving of the 2-0 win. So to come out after the game and maybe deflect away from a poor performance mm-hmm. by saying we should have had a handball and should have had a penalty, which I think they probably should have done. I think that's fair fair enough from Bruno Fernandez's perspective. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, that's that's not the reason Manchester United lost no. the game because they didn't get a penalty. Gosh, if anyone saw the game, I mean, Bruno had literally the easiest header in world football to nod in. And clearly his head was shaped like a 50p on that day because it went into <laughs> Rosette. A, n- a numerous amount of those types of chances though. So I can understand the desperation in saying, come on, we, if we had a penalty, it would have changed things. Probably would have changed things because the score was was pretty much level at that stage. Mm. But you have to finish your chances and that's, that's a deeper issue in itself in the team. But yeah, in terms of decisions, I think we're going to go through a long season of subjectivity of people not really, like you might see a handball different to the way I see a handball. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the way it's going to be in football. I, I still can't believe we went through whole decades of just arguing and we didn't get to see it back. It's crazy to me. Well, we'll talk more about Manchester United and their defeat to Spurs a little bit later as Postacoglu gets his first win as Tottenham manager. But um, one thing that's become probably a bit more of a habit than they would have liked is Everton's form. They're bottom of the table already in 2023-24. If they're in a relegation fight again this season, that'll be the third campaign in a row that they're fighting a drop to the championship. We'll talk about their struggles next on Football Social Daily. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. We're almost at the end of match day two of the Premier League season. It's Arsenal against Crystal Palace tonight, which we'll talk about shortly. But yet again, Everton find themselves at the bottom of the Premier League. After just two games, they're struggling already. And we'll talk about Sean Dyche's side shortly. But first, Jim Salverson's in the studio because West Ham won at the weekend. All right, Jim. Oi, oi, Savloy. <laughs> he picks his moments to come on, doesn't he? He's just finished his jelly deals outside the studio. Upping the Cockney levels. <laughs> um, big win for West Ham, that, wasn't it? Important win. Surprising I, win. Well, I tipped the Hammers to struggle this season. You did as well, being a self-deprecating Hammers fan. But yeah. to win and to beat a Chelsea side that some people are tipping to do well this season, good result, that. I think you'd struggle to say we deserved it. But at the same time, I'll take exactly what I can get. I think Chelsea looked really dangerous at times. They looked good. They had flashes of brilliance, but the just 
they look like a team who hadn't really played together very much and that will come for them, I think. I yeah. think there's definitely faith in what will happen at Chelsea. But for West Ham, I, I looked at the first dozen games this season mm. and I couldn't see where we were getting points, particularly apart from the Luton game. That was kind of the one <laughs> I went, we might get You're something You're going loose to that. Luton now, I reckon. Well, but it's given us that safety net. Four points from two games. Yeah, I think start. that gives them a good start and I think actually West Ham, if the rumoured transfers come off this season, mm. will actually go into this squad despite going into the season, despite the fact Declan Rice is gone, could go into the season in a much stronger position than they were in last season. So, my early scepticism a couple of weeks back where I was tipping us for relegation is yeah. ebbing away slightly. Well, I did as well tip you to go down because when we sat and did our predictions podcast ahead of the new season about 10 days ago, there was rumours of friction behind the scenes yep. between David Moyes and the sporting director. You hadn't signed anyone, yet you had sold Rice. James Ward-Prowse has been brought in, gets two assists mm-hmm. on his debut. So there are promising signs there, not just in terms of the three points, but also what we saw. Yeah, and I think... In terms of what's happening behind the scenes, it seems like there's been some kind of compromise reached as well in terms of who's identifying the transfers and where those targets are. And there's definitely a mix of the James Ward-Prowse's, which is 100% a David Moyes signing, Mm -hmm. and players like Kudus that we're looking at, the Greek chap whose name I can never remember, who used to play for Arsenal. Yeah, him. him. Marley's in Greece now. Should we just bring him and ask him to get something to pronounce it? He'll be deep in a Giros. (laughs) But he feels like a signing for the, although both of them feel like signings from the technical director. Alvarez feels like um, he's one of them as well. So I I think actually, after a little bit of early tension, everything Mm. seems to be working together. Still not a massive fan of David Moyes' tactics. I think that will come a cropper many times this season because in both the games we've scored early and then just sat back and accepted pressure. And there's only so many times that works for you. But yeah, I'm definitely more confident than I was. Jim said that Chelsea played like a side that haven't had much time together. Pochettino obviously hasn't had a great deal of time in the building at Stamford Bridge and enough time to really get all of these new signings gelling. And I feel like we saw a similar display against Liverpool where they looked really bright at times, but never got the result that they wanted, which was a victory. Mm. So they're still chasing that first win of the season. But do you think it will come, Joel? Do you think it will be a matter of time? Because some supporters have suggested it's time for Pochettino to go already. I hate football. <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't Honestly, it? Honestly, <laughs> we've got the attention span of goldfish these days, haven't we? I read an alarming stat, which is that they've won five of the last 31 games, which is quite considerable considering how much they've spent and the talent that they've got on their hands. Mm. I just think every game they go into, it almost feels like a poison chalice because of how much every single player costs. So, for example, when Moises Keane, uh, Moises Keane, uh, Moises Caicedo came on, mm. you know, he concedes the penalty, um, pretty much Leon gives every single ball away. And suddenly, you know, he's praying at the end of the game to God, exactly, like, what exactly the hell has gone on with this game? Mm. Every single game, they're going to be pointing fingers. If Enzo Fernandez does a back pass, finished he cost 105 million why is he giving these back passes it's almost like the price tag syndrome which we've seen harry Maguire have where he's not an 80 million pound man casado should never have been 110 million but because of that price tag on the head you almost associate value like we do in real life with jewelry or whatever else puts a load of pressure instantly on instantly 150 million what are you expecting from a midfielder but also you know 105 million enzo fernandez misses a penalty straight away you put pressure on yourself Exactly. It's, and this this is what Pochettino is going to have to deal with because at Spurs, he never had to deal with this expectation for his players because they were all either relatively unknown, came from the youth academy or really cheap 
Now he's in a totally mm. different scenario where he's got the riches that he, he could dream of. But well, that's every what game some has Chelsea fans are saying, Joel. That is what some Chelsea fans are saying. They are saying Pochettino has no history of winning trophies. At Spurs, it was exactly what you said. The team were punching above their weight and they were riding that crest of a wave with Pochettino, with the great players that they had at the time. And at Chelsea, it's totally different because they come from a history of the last 20 years of winning trophies. Mm. And Pochettino maybe isn't going to have that safety net of being able to lean on the fact that the club hasn't been successful in the past and they're doing good things now because Chelsea certainly have been successful in the past. It's just too early to say, isn't it? It's too early to make any kind of predictions like that. And I think Chelsea, the early signs are there. And Mm. if nothing else, they'll be really entertaining football at Stamford Bridge this year. But the likes of Nicholas Jackson, who I, I was not aware of before he moved to Chelsea, but he seems like a really raw, precocious talent. I think he could come good after a few games. But yeah. Joel's right that there's two pressures on Chelsea at the moment. One is that kind of individual price tag perceived pressure, which mm. isn't genuine. It's just that plays on players' minds, I think. But there is a genuine pressure for the football club in that they have to do well this season yeah. because otherwise they've dug themselves into a financial hole. And I'm not going to pretend I understand all the kind of like scenarios around how Chelsea are possibly funding their mm. transfer activity. But my understanding is... It's kind of like multifaceted in that the reason they can avoid FFP is it's stretched over the current yeah the current length of the contracts. But at the same time, the players they've sold go onto the books straight away, which is which is fine in terms of accounting and FFP. It's not fine in terms of cash flow because Chelsea don't have a huge amount of money coming in at the moment, so they don't. It looks okay in terms of yeah, FFP, especially not with they, Champions League football. But they still spent yeah. a load of money really, really quickly. Like you say, without Champions League football, I think it could leave them in a potential hole. So they, that is a real, real genuine pressure. It feels like every game there's added pressure on Pochettino because, like we've touched upon, the money that's been spent, but also people are watching with interest because they're wondering: Is this the game that Chelsea going to click? Mm. Is this the game they're going to do someone four nil? Is this the game when all of the players that we've heard so much about are finally going to come good? And I feel like that's going to happen every single game until it does happen, do which we, we don't know when it do will Do we be. feel like Chelsea are getting a little bit of a free pass this season? And well, that's not because of the money they spend, but because they've had about 15 outgoings, 15 mm. incomings, a new well, manager. Did anyone give Nottingham Forest a free pass last season mm. when that happened? No, they exactly. absolutely slated them. So why should Chelsea well, it's, it's, get the It seems like for me, Arsenal have got more pressure than Chelsea this season. As in, everyone thinks Arsenal should be going for the title, but should Chelsea not? Because they've literally blown the bank and got every top talent available, top manager. Mm. Should they not be now ready to just go straight into it? But it's it's hardly a crisis situation for them. They drew with Liverpool opening day. They lost to West Ham and they were unlucky. If they yeah. scored that penalty, it would have been a different scenario. They got Luton and Forest next. Beautiful games to yeah. start. If they winning, don't win it? those, then you start to ask yeah, questions. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. it would be a very different scenario yeah. when in two weeks' time, if in two weeks' time, they've got seven points on the board. It's like a crisis what crisis it's all coming together do you think Chelsea fans need to learn patience though it's not something they've really been accustomed to since Abramovich took over in 2003 if things aren't going well you sack the manager look at when they first won the Champions League in 2012 that was Roberto Di Matteo a caretaker manager he got the job permanently Mm. six months later he was gone no sentiment see you later you're not doing good enough you'll be replaced football needs to learn patience though because that's not Mm. a problem just with Chelsea although it's been maybe exaggerated on the uh, Abramovich era he got rid of people 
Every club does it to a certain extent, don't yeah. they? Well, it doesn't always work. No. But sometimes it does. I mean, I remember Joel sitting on this podcast saying that Arteta needs to be sacked because he's not good enough. And then he goes... I didn't say he needs to be sacked. I said, I said, I said, he's, said, pe- I said he's Pep's cold man. He's going on about that. Ten Hag being sacked all morning in the office, <laughs> demanding that it happened. <laughs> um, one of my favourite moments from the West Ham-Chelsea game, though, was on Twitter. Someone called <laughs> Chelsea's new signing Moises Concedo. <laughs> Moises Concedo. <laughs> the names the, that I've heard, I've heard... Aaron Ramsdale called Aaron Hologramsdale. <laughs> 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 They're inventive on there. Love the creativity. Love the creativity. Right. Aston Villa are a club that Jim tipped to finish in the top four at the end of the season. A bold prediction from Mr. Salverson over there. And it didn't look like that was going to be the case after match day one when they were thrashed by Newcastle. But they dealt out a smashing of their own at the weekend. They absolutely tore Everton apart. Only two games. One win by a big margin, one defeat by a big margin. Does that give somewhat of a synopsis, Jim, of where Villa are at the moment? Probably better than bottom half, but not quite good enough for top six just yet? Yeah, I think probably Newcastle hit the ground with such pace at the beginning of the season that they probably overperformed in that game. And I think we're not going to see a true Newcastle until they get elbows deep in European competition. And that kind of starts to take its toll. But as for Aston Villa, I think the performance that we saw at the weekend was more in line with what I expected to see them doing this season. Mm. But then you've got to temper that with the fact that it was Everton and Everton looked like they're very short of ideas and in real trouble this year. So I don't think um, any of the Aston Villa fans are going to be maybe looking for my top four prediction to come true yet because it's definitely been a mixed bag so far this season. But the, again, it's like the, the signs are there, the potential's there. You've got yeah. new players coming in, coming together. And it seems to be working. Like you said, it's so early. Newcastle looked like an incredible force against Aston Villa and yet they couldn't see off a weakened Manchester City who really flexed their muscles, I thought, Mm. in that game against the Toon at the weekend. So it's only two games. It's really hard to tell really what exactly will happen. I think after eight or ten games is when the table really starts to shape up. What I thought was interesting was just how well Leon Bailey performed because someone on Football Social Daily last week said that they weren't very good. Um, I think Leon Bailey is in the team. He hasn't done a thing for me since signing for Villa. So there you go, Marley, if you're listening, on your sunbed in Greece somewhere. Enjoy that one. Pile will go down nice. (laughs) (laughs) Sharp bit of analysis from Marley Anderson. Right, let's talk about Everton, who Villa swiftly dispatched. Bottom already. They were a bit unlucky against Fulham last week, Joel, but no such Poor luck this weekend. They just weren't good enough. Sean Dyche already has issues. He says that he could have subbed the whole team off at the weekend. That's how bad it was. Well, he couldn't. That's against the rules. You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> well, when you look at what they've spent, I can understand why. I mean, when you look at the transfers, Dan Juma, who the, he rejected last summer, by the way, then you had Jack Harrison on loan, Ashley Young on a free transfer. I mean, even Luton have had a better summer than Everton have. And we've all slated how Luton have been getting all these free transfers from the championship and whatever else. Everton's just a team that is just in absolute turmoil upstairs in terms of what's going on. The only bright silver lining I see is this new stadium, but the new stadium is going to be end up playing in the championship because they don't have a team or a leadership from above which can guide them and continue in the Premier League. They've been flirting too much with relegation for the last two seasons now. And I think this season they're going to be doing it yet again. And again, Sean Dyche, even though we know he's a great manager who can operate under a really tight transfer budget, we've saw yet uh, last season, Everton have just got no goals. I mean, Damari Gray's been linked with a move to Saudi Arabia. Mm. He was one of their brightest players last season. 
really good output. Dominic Calvert-Lewin has gone off with an injury. They've tried to get transfer, tried to get strikers in like Traore from Almeria. He's gone to Atalanta. Tried to get Che Adams. I don't yeah. know if that's going to come off. We'll talk is about that gonna, one later. I know we will. I know we will from a Portsmouth fan. Um, but is Che Adams going to be a person who's going to keep them in the Premier League? I I don't know. They've been relying on Solomon Rondon last year. They're not serious in the striking department at all. It's ridiculous how long that has been an issue for Everton that they've not been able to score goals. And it's almost yeah. like they've been waiting for Dominic Carvet-Lewin to have a run of fitness and mm. score a run of goals. And it's just not happening. We've seen and it's really sad that such a talent is going to be hampered by injury. And that looks like the way his career is going because yeah. it looks like he's out for an extended spell now. Alex Iwobi, who I think Alex Iwobi was their top goal scorer last season, wasn't he? He's definitely a fan favourite. But for me, Iwobi is one of those players where he doesn't have the football IQ that maybe mm. some other players do. He, he makes the wrong decision too often. He's not a striker. Often. No, of course not. And no. he's gone off in, he went off injured at the week. I don't know how bad his injury is, but that puts mm. him in even more of a hole. And it's just... It feels unrealistic when you're turning to Che Adams to be the, your saviour as well, doesn't it? It doesn't feel yeah. like yeah. The, the, that kind of signing doesn't reach the ambitions that the club have externally. You're a West Ham fan, so you would have seen Andy Carroll in his pomp at West Ham. I saw Andy Carroll. I'm not sure he was in his pomp. But. Well, <laughs> Andy Carroll, was he ever in his pomp? Because he was always injured. That will be the big question. Yeah. And it's one of those situations with Calvert-Lewin, I feel, where when he's on... He's very good. Mm. But the problem is he's injured all the time. And you just can't hang your hat on a player like that, particularly in a division as ruthless as the Premier League. It feels such a long time ago now that the likes of Manchester United were talking about him and he was looking at... He's got that like, England call up. Yeah, and being a decent yeah, second option for Yeah, Harry under Kane. Ancelotti, which does feel like an eternity ago now. He mm. was very good. And I think there's a bit of a difference between even like... I mean, it's an interesting comparison you make to Andy Carroll. But Andy Carroll, on the occasions he was fit... He'd always come in and hit the ground running. He didn't kind of take that four or five games to kind of get back into the run of things because he was such a unit. All he did was got on the pitch and just put his elbows people. everywhere. <laughs> yeah, just like ran in on David De Gea and people like that and just like flattened him. And he didn't kind of need that. Mm. I think I think Calvert Lewin's a little bit more of a technical player and he is big and strong. And he likes to get his head on the ball, but he feels like he needs a run of games to kind of get that fitness. But he doesn't get that run of games because he gets halfway through it and gets injured. And yeah. it, it's, a, it's a real shame. But it, Everton need to kind of wake up to that fact and go, look, we can't rely on this guy. We need to look at a serious second option. Yeah, and that serious second option might well be Shea Adams. And he's part of the transfer talk that we'll do next on Football Social Daily. See you after this. Final part of today's show. I'm Niall, Joel and Jim are with me in the studio and we've just been talking about Everton's potential transfer for Southampton's Shea Adams. Joel's already referenced the fact Tamari Gray is likely to leave Goodison Park at some point in the next couple of days to confirm a switch to Saudi Arabia. Leaves us scratching our heads a bit because we thought that Damari Gray was one of Everton's better players mm. last season, particularly at the start of the campaign when he was signed for, what was it, £1.5 or something, and he came in, scored a few goals and looked pretty good. £15 million is the touted fee that Everton are hoping to agree with Southampton for Shea Adams, who actually scored a last-minute winner for Southampton against Plymouth Argyle in the Championship at the weekend. So I guess you could argue he's in goal-scoring form, if you want to count two or three games of the season. More so than what Everton have done. <laughs> More than what Everton have done. I mean, it's not a signing, as Jim says, that really gets the juices flowing, but he has scored goals in the Premier League in the past, but for the side that were relegated last season, is that really the barrel that Everton are picking from at the moment? They're, they are scraping at the barrel. I mean, they've hit and missed in the, in the summer window. I mentioned Traore didn't get him and they've 
they offered a good 28 million euro fee for him. When you look at Che Adams' stats in the Premier League, he's just a just a slow burner, isn't he? Five in 28 last year, then the season before that, seven in 30. He's not going to keep you in the Premier League, but... That one in five is record at Southampton, I think. There'll be big goals. I mean, I, I know that um, Nyonto from Leeds has mm. basically rejected going to Everton. Everton's not the most attractive place to go to at the moment. I know they're a big club, but if I was a player... Even playing for Southampton because they're probably one of the favourites to go up as well. They, I don't even know how much they've received this summer, but it must be nearly up to 150 million now in terms mm. of fee received. So they're going to have an amazing amount of cash flow going into potentially next season. It might even be wise to go to one of these type teams like Leicester, like Southampton, because Everton are on a downward trajectory. And if Nyonto goes to them, he might end up finding himself in the Championship next season, and he might end up finding Southampton or I was going to say Leeds, but definitely not Leeds. But, you know, Leicester back in the Premier League. So it's a shame because I feel like their fans deserve so much more. It's such a big club and it almost feels like with the Ancelotti appointment, they were dangled the golden carrot. Mm. They really thought they were going places. Got James Rodriguez in. Everything felt sweet and rosy. And then Real Madrid just absolutely came and arrived in the Lamborghini and said, we're taking our boy back. And it all just kind of, Ended in tears, really. Mm, yeah, it seems strange that only a few years ago, Ancelotti was the Everton manager and there were players like James Rodriguez at Goodison Park. But Everton, with problems to solve, Sean Dyche, I'm sure, will be working hard to try and get to the bottom of them. Also issues for Eric Ten Hag, Jim. We've already talked about Manchester United briefly on today's podcast, but they lost to Spurs 2-0. And without talking about the handball that wasn't a handball or Bruno Fernandez's post-match interview... Postacoglu can be pretty happy with his first win as Tottenham manager. They've played well and they've looked good in the last two games, actually. I think Spurs fans will be as happy as Big Ange that they've got off to a flying start without Harry Kane because it could have, it felt like it could, could go either way. Yeah. I think we kind of said that it's almost potentially a positive losing Harry Kane because it is a real line in the sand in terms of what's come before and what is next for Spurs. But for the first time in a long time, Spurs seem to a have a little bit of grit about them, mm. a little bit of determination, and I don't think Big Ange is a man who's going to be taking any of the proverbial from his yeah. players. He's a man who demands Listen, if nothing mate. else effort levels. Yeah, exactly. Mate. I think he'll be really happy. Yeah, and um, I mean, in terms of Manchester United's performance, you're talking to the wrong side of the room, but mm. I'm sure they will be as disappointed as Spurs fans are happy. But again, early days seems positive and seems really good, and I think there could be something quite interesting happening at Spurs. Throwing all our yes. pre-season predictions out the window, you could certainly see them potentially in this early form flirting with those European places. Famous last words, Jim. Yeah, exactly. Nail in the coffin. <laughs> but I'm here nothing else but <laughs> over Spurs. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, you talk about there being a line in the sand pre and post Harry Kane's time at Tottenham. Do you think in a way that it took a bit of weight off of Spurs though, Jim? The fact that he wasn't there and there wasn't all of these eyes on Harry Kane in terms of let's get the ball to him. He's the one that's going to score all, all of our goals. Maybe. Maybe it encourages a more holistic approach as a team because you're not going, there's our superstar, like get him the ball. Here's yeah. the focus. Harry point. will get us out of the trouble. The Harry Kane yeah. team, yeah. it was known as, wasn't but, it, pretty much? But maybe also from an opposition point of view, even though you're taking a supremely talented player out of the lineup. Does that make the way that team is going to play less predictable? Because you haven't got the simple scenario of going like, like yeah. Lionel Messi in World Cups. The solution was Mark put him two out or the three game, players yeah. on him, yeah, yeah and then you worry about everything else. It's a similar thing with Harry Kane. It's like 
you have to put two players on him so we can back into one and fall over and the other one can actually take the ball. But taking him out of the equation probably adds a surprise element to actually what they can do and how they can perform. The whole scenario running into the season wasn't ideal because it was 100% would have been a distraction. I have no doubt that Big Ange would have wanted to be focusing on preparations. But now it's gone. You can forget about it. You can move on and you can build this new look Spurs team without him. You said, Joel, Manchester United feels flat at the moment. We spoke Mm. last week about the situation involving Mason Greenwood and Manchester United's delay in a decision. But why do you think it is so flat and what needs to change? It's a really good question, to be honest. I do think something's going on behind the scenes. I'm not saying something sinister or anything like that, but... Is it the takeover situation? Do you think that's still there? I I think for the players, their futures are secured. I don't think that's the issue. I just think something's gone on. I mean, if anyone's watched the game at the weekend, Spurs... The thing that makes me annoyed so much is that Andrew's come in after two games and you can clearly see what he wants to do. I'm not saying that that's happening with Ten Hag, but it, his selection's so questionable where Casemiro feels like he's in an island in the middle of the ocean. He's got all this space around him. Mason Mount's over here. Fernandez is over here. And the gaping holes in midfield. Spurs were literally, and we saw it against Wolves, just going through it. Literally gliding through the midfield, straight uh, transitioning straight to an attack, and it's just becoming really questionable. You saw Rashford getting taken off while he was playing in striker, and it's crazy because a couple of weeks ago the interviewer on Sky asked him what's your favourite position, and he said, "Yeah, I love playing on the wing. I'm, I don't really fancy playing as a striker, but I will play there if needed." And then Ten Hag insists, "Striker, you're playing there." He doesn't fit as a striker, and then he goes on the bench and starts throwing his socks on the floor in frustration because he cannot play there and Ten Hag he was actually renowned for it at Ajax even though he had a great record at Ajax a lot of Ajax fans say that there were times where he insists on playing plays that shouldn't be playing or insists on playing them in a position that they shouldn't be playing in and I think with Ten Hag he's a little bit stubborn and we saw it at the start of last season where you know he was playing Ronaldo it didn't work out and then he was playing Harry Maguire it wasn't working out I do think it will come good, but again, we just need Hoyland to get fit and I do think we need another midfielder. But I just think with this Greenwood situation going on, the takeover situation going on, it just still feels like everything's not settled behind the scenes at the moment. I just think, Mm. I don't know, from what I saw, Spurs look super prepared and Manchester United look like they need another pre-season. Do you think Ten Hag has the personnel to play in a system? Because I look at Manchester United's squad and particularly in midfield, as you say, it doesn't look particularly balanced. If he wants to play Rashford and Anthony and Mason Mount and Bruno Fernandes and Ericsson, it's like, and whoever else you've got, it it doesn't seem like there's a logical way to play them together in one system, or even half of them in one system. It's 100%. We've all been saying it as well. There's no balance in the midfield. Mason Mount's not a dictator who's going to sit next to Casemiro, be that kind of you know, the Frankie Dion Gundogan type player who can yeah. transition defence to attack. He's not. He's more of an attacking player. Same with Bruno. The issue now is that Ten Hag's got nowhere to hide because they're his players. He chose to pick Mason Mount as a transfer. He chose to have Casemiro as a hold midfielder. He chose to have Anthony on the right wing and demand to pay £85 million for him. Now, as much as we slate the Glazers and whatever else, he's got the players that he actually wants. Now, maybe Harry Kane was probably the number one choice okay, we didn't have the funds in place to do that, but he's got another player who could potentially fill that void. 
now he's got to prove his worth in terms of bringing them all together because having a midfield of Casemiro, Mount and Fernandez cannot work. It just simply cannot work because we saw it against Wolves. As soon as you get counter-attacked, Casemiro is literally on his own. No support. I think we need someone like Amrabat, someone who can be a little bit more versatile. Yeah. But as things stand, and I have belief from last year when we got smashed by Bright, uh, Brentford, things can change quickly, can't they? And it's not yeah. like now the season started horribly, it's going to end horribly. I still have faith. Yeah, I'm not asking for it to be sacked or anything like that. Well, Manchester United started last season terribly, as Joel says. Their next game off the back of that defeat to Brentford was a win over Liverpool. So that's a pretty good way of setting things right. I'm not sure who Manchester United have got next. Got but Arsenal in two weeks. Okay, well, Nottingham there we go. There's, there's the big game, isn't it? Arsenal. And let's talk about Arsenal as they are looking to set the pace early like they did last year. They've lost Hury and Timber already with injury. They've got Crystal Palace tonight. You get the feeling they're probably going to be too strong for a Palace side who have had a few ins and outs, let's just say, Jim, over the last couple of days. Yeah, but I think Palace will be feeling relatively confident at the moment after hanging on to Elise. Yes, after that was big for them. Exactly, that was a huge deal. The fact that I, I think just a player showing faith in Palace and the project there and wanting to hang around for a little bit longer rather than move to one of the big clubs has got to be a massive lift for them. But at the end of the day, I think Crystal Palace are always going to do what Crystal Palace do and that's attempt to finish mid-table at best. And they've shown that ambition with keeping Roy Hodgson at the helm because he's not a manager who's going to take that football club to the next level. But that said, he's always got it in his locker to cause problems. Roy Hodgson, in terms of the football he plays... <laughs> Roy Hodgson's got it in his yeah, locker. Roy Hodgson on the <laughs> wing. Bring him off the bench. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, it, they'll, they'll play, they'll play a, an absorbing game. They'll, they'll try and mop up the Arsenal attack. They'll try and frustrate as much as possible. Mm. And if it gets to... 50, 60 minutes and it's still nil-nil, it will start to look a bit edgy. The best thing Arsenal could do is score an early goal and open it up and then I think they'll absolutely run away with it. But if Crystal Palace can do what they will no doubt go into that game trying to do and that's to stop Arsenal scoring, it could become a frustrating evening for Arteta. Do you think Arsenal will pick up a second win of the season, two in a row, and stay up there with Man City and Brighton? Yeah, I think after well, obviously after winning their first game as well, I think Timber being injured is going to massively impact the way they play. If everyone saw Arsenal in pre-season, you could see exactly how he was going to work, even on the Community Shield final, where he started to become a little bit more of an almost inverted fullback, similar to what Pep's doing uh, with the likes of Kyle Walker and John Stones. I still think that they probably need to replace him with another fullback because that's how pivotal I, th- I think he was going to be to that team. But when you look at their attack, it's absolutely stacked, isn't it? When you look at Martinelli and Saka... Even Eddie and Ketia, I, st- I really like him. I don't know why Arsenal fans are so, you know, appalled that he's starting for them. He was so good in that period last mm. season when uh, Jesus he, went in. He fits he, their system, doesn't he? I'm he's not, great. I'm not convinced by him myself, actually. But he's his, a great re- his record is excellent. Though, isn't he? Cheap. He's going yeah. yeah. to play yeah. every yeah, day. He's going to play. His record's very, very good. So I don't know why I'm not convinced on him. I'm not sure what it is. But he fits their system. He scores goals. Jim's right. He's going to be the man in the starting eleven for the next few weeks. So why not? And the crazy part is they've got Balogun as well on their ranks who got 21 goals for Rem last season and they're trying to shift him on. Havertz, if you want to class him as a striker, be my guest, but I'd class you as crazy. Um, but I think when you look at the team now, it just it looks set, it looks ready, it looks better than last season. 
And these are the types of games last season that they were absolutely cruising by. I think at the end of last season, they were winning 4-1, 4-0 away from home every single week. If they can continue that up now, then I personally don't think they have much worry, to be honest, unless they have some kind of injury to one of their front front players. All right, well, Arsenal against Crystal Palace is an 8pm kickoff tonight and that completes match day two of the Premier League season. We're already two games in, just like that. But the transfer window next week will be over and that will be certainly capturing plenty of higher attention. And if you like what you hear on Football Social Daily, why not hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen to your podcasts. As we mentioned earlier on in the show, we're going to be maybe slightly up and down in terms of publication times and schedules at the moment whilst we iron out a few things. So make sure you hit subscribe, as I say. But from Joel, Jim and I, that is it on Football Social Daily. For now, we'll catch you next time. See you then. Football Social Daily is a voice work sport production for the Sports Social Podcast Network.